God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your enduring faithfulness, even when we are sometimes faithless. We thank you for your grace, even in moments of, of doubt and struggle. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for the fact that you have given your son so that he might overcome sin that we could never overcome under our own power. Help us, Lord, to trust you this day, to learn more from your word, to hear what you have to say to us. Speak through Pastor Frank Slater today as we hear the words that you've uh, given him to share with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in Luke chapters 5 and 6 today. goes up a little Alright, so if you'll turn to Luke 5 with me, we'll read that. We'll get started with our questions. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. 
And Jesus said to them, Can you make a can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. All right. Lots to think about there. I want to actually backtrack real quick before we go on to these questions, though. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the genealogies in Luke and in Matthew, and we offered up a couple uh, explanations for some of the differences of why they might be that way. I was reading through Eusebius's church history last week, and Eusebius actually um, offers a different take on that than, than anything we mentioned. Um, he was talking about how, uh, and Eusebius is writing in mm, just just a little bit before 300 A.D. Okay. And so uh, he said that you know, even the descendants of the Lord today, which is an interesting statement, right? So like there are, there's, he's aware of, of people who are descendants of Jesus' brothers and sisters in his day. But he says they have passed down this tradition to this day. And he says that um, the, the, he accounts for the differences in the Gospels' um, genealogies by saying that Matthew is giving the physical descent and Luke is giving the legal descent and he points out to the fact that just like when a man would die and had no children and the brother would marry to give offspring, he's saying that's what's going on there in the genealogy differences. So I think that's interesting. So one is naming the, the literal bodily physical descent and the other is naming the legal descent and that's why there's some discrepancies according to him. So there's at least another theory on how to, how to think through some of those difficulties there. But I thought I'd mention that since we had talked about it recently. Okay, what is the profession of the first disciples whom Jesus calls? There we go. All right. These aren't trick questions. Uh, What occurs when they obey Jesus and let down their nets again, despite having caught nothing all night? Their nets burst because they have so many fish. Such a huge haul of fish. They're sinking two boats with it, right? Um... What unimaginable thing does Jesus do while healing the leper? Touches him. And I just want to make a point on this, just to think about it. Like, can you imagine? So, I mean, the leper situation, right, is that he would be out, outside of the camp, right? He would be outside the city. He'd probably be in a leper colony, maybe, or maybe just pretty much on his own. People can't come near him. Anybody that sees him, he's supposed to shout out, you know, unclean, unclean, I have leprosy, don't come near, you know. And, and, and so the idea, one, that he, he breaks all those conventions to come running up to Jesus is something. But two, the fact that Jesus, who we see elsewhere, right, can just say, you're clean, you're healed, no big deal, right? The fact that he actually places his hand on this man is astounding, right? It's just, it's a huge deal. And, and not only... Uh, does it show Jesus' command over the disease, right? But could you imagine being the guy who, I don't who knows how long this man had leprosy, but it could have been years and years that he, since he's had anybody even just kindly touch him, you know, hand on the shoulder, anything like that. So it's, just, it's a pretty remarkable moment. We're so creating a catch-22 with the... Uh uh, with some of the uh, legalists in there, right? Because if you if if you touch somebody, then you become unclean. Yeah. But how can somebody unclean heal somebody? Right, right. And of course, Jesus will address that in other in other places too, as far as it's, it's what comes out of the heart that makes people unclean. Um, what does Jesus tell the man who is cured of his paralysis? Forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Um, what do the Pharisees say that Jesus has done by that declaration? Blasphemy. Blasphemy, right? And then the last of our just basic questions, what is Levi's profession? Tax collector, good. Okay, so when we go back to thinking about the, the amazing catch of fish, why is Peter's reaction to the miracle 
of the great catch of fish, one of fear and confession of his own sinfulness. Was the realization that he's in the presence of God? Okay. Yeah. Is this like, he didn't, I don't think he believed him when he's like, yeah, okay, we'll do it. To, I'll humor you. Right. We'll do it. Fine. Yeah. Which, I mean, it, it does seem to indicate some level of already respect for Jesus, right? He's probably already thinking, well, this is, this guy's a pretty, he's a pretty real teacher. I've heard things about him, you know, right? Or maybe he's already sat and listened to Jesus for a while. Like, I don't think, I think it's reasonable to think that this isn't his first brush up with Jesus, but he probably hasn't seen this side yet, you know? So yeah, he's like, all right, I'll go along. I'm really tired. We caught that thing, but sure, I'll go along, right? But yeah, then this miracle happens, and they bring in all these fish. And I don't know. I'll just ask this: Does this remind you of the way Jesus, or the way Peter reacts to Jesus at this moment? Does it remind you of any other passage of scripture? It always calls powerfully to memory one of my another passage of scripture. I just wonder if it does for anybody else. Does this trigger any other thoughts for you? Similar reaction elsewhere. John reacts that way in Revelation. Okay. He falls there. Yeah. Definitely, there's that. I mean, uh, yeah. I was going to say, in some ways, the language is similar to Isaiah's. Isaiah's yeah, yeah, that's where my head goes all the time, right? It's just this, like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, you know, and I have seen the Lord, I'm a dead man, you know? And, and this, this seems a very similar reaction that we're getting from Peter here, where he just, he falls down and just confesses his own sinfulness, right? Because he's struck by the power of God right in front of him, um, so I do I do feel like this is something of a Isaiah six moment for Peter of seeing the Lord's holiness and recognizing his own sin and unworthiness, and yet in the same time this is where Jesus says, "Come follow me." Okay, um, and note also that when Jesus tells him uh, and and also James and John to come and follow them. Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 5 says, And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay? Uh, we're going to see that same phrase here in just a little bit. So in Luke 5, 17 through 26, why does Jesus tell the paralytic man that his sins are forgiven when he was brought for physical healing? Is there a relationship between sin and physical ailments? And you might consider John 9, 1 through 7 in your answer. What did you what did you think about this? Why would he tell this man his sins are forgiven when he was brought for physical healing? He addresses his greater need first. Okay. Yeah. Good. Anybody else? Thoughts? So I think that's I think it's true. I think that you know this this man and his friends you know recognized Jesus as a, a healer and a miracle worker, um, and they brought their paralyzed friend so that he might have healing in his body. But Jesus does first address the greater need that he needs healing in his soul. He needs healing in his relationship with God, and so that's what Jesus addresses first. Um, but he does then, of course, go ahead and actually heal the man and his physical uh, physical needs as well. Do you think is there a relationship between physical ailments and our sin? What do you think? How does how does Jesus address this issue? Well, the passage you uh, cited um, for John nine would say no, or if you just go by that passage, it's right. no. Um, you also have to take into context that God did use famine and sickness and illness uh, in the Old Testament as punishment. So, it, not necessarily. Sometimes yes, but it's also no. Right, right. Yeah, we have to be, we have to be careful about these kind of questions. You know, I, I know in my early walk as a Christian, um, I was part of charismatic movement for a while, right? And there was always a direct one-to-one correlation between these things. If you had a cold, it's because there was a demon oppressing you or something like that. You know, I mean, it was just always that way. Um, but I think, we, like you're saying, Mark, that in Scripture we have indication that 
there are times that sickness and ailments have a spiritual relationship. There is a spiritual thing going on there. I think in a certain sense, you can, you can at least broadly say, um, well, we live in a fallen and broken world, right? And so in that sense, all sickness, all disease, all ailments, right, have a connection with, the, the, with sin. But at the same time, you know, as the, as the passage we uh, have in there in John 9, you've got the, the blind man, and of course the question is, you know, well, is this his sin or is this his parents' sin, right? And, and Jesus says it's neither. It's so that the glory of God might be shown in him, right? Um, and so I think we, you know, we have to be careful about these things because it's hard to, uh, I, I think, for instance, you know, whenever there's like a hurricane or something like that, you know, you've got somebody out there saying, this is God's judgment against those wicked, sinful people. And it's like, maybe in some sense, right? But I, I hate to be the person who declares that prophetically in that very specific sense, right? Um, there is a sense, obviously, when, when the whole world is under God's condemnation because of sin. But when it gets down to the details, I think we need to be careful. Um, now, there's obvious, on the other side of this, right, there are, in Scripture, very clear links to when uh, our sin can bring about ailments, right? I mean, you think of um, uh, sexual sins, right? Things like that can bring about obvious results that you say that's a direct result of your sin, right? Um, so, but, but I just think we need to be careful about these one-to-one ratios and always saying, well, if you're sick or if you have cancer or you have, you know, you must have done something wrong that you need to repent of. That's not necessarily true because even as believers walking in faith, you know, we still live in part of this broken world system um, and will sometimes endure sickness and suffering. So why might Jesus' association with Levi be considered objectionable to the Pharisees. Remember that John told the tax collectors in chapter 3, or what he told them in chapter 3, verse 13. The tax collectors intended traitors to their own people. Okay. They were getting taxes on, for the Romans mm-hmm. from the Jews, and then they were taking a little extra for themselves. That's right. How made money, and some of them were taking advantage of that and taking more, so they were they were traitors, in a sense, to, okay. to the Jews, and so the Pharisees probably thought, this, probably thought themselves better than almost all in Israel, really thought, well, these guys are losers. Yeah. What are you, you guys are kidding me, Did these people you're sitting with? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um... I was, you know, actually, uh, this is kind of off subject, but I'll share you. I was looking yesterday. I remember, I think last week I said something about how you can go on eBay and look at, like, first century Roman coins and things like that. Well, I was doing that yesterday just because I was <laughs> thinking about it some more. And you really can. It's really cool, right? You can find them. And so uh, the, the cheapest first century Roman coin I could find was around $125. But I found some fourth century Roman coins for around $12, by the way, just in case you're interested. It's pretty neat. Um, <laughs> Maybe Christmas is coming, right? Okay, but anyway, um, yeah. So that's that's exactly right. You know, the the tax collectors were working for the oppressors, right? Um, and of course, you had within the uh, within the larger body of Jews, you had those who were the zealots who were really just super opposed to the Roman rule, and they were always trying to stir up revolt and like, let's get them out of here and let's see what we can do about it and. Um, and then, you know, you have the Pharisees who definitely didn't like the Roman rule and oppressors, but I, but I think you could also make an argument that in some ways they enjoyed the benefits of it um, because at the same time there was a certain level of stability brought to the area. That get, so as long as they kind of like flew under the radar and didn't get too involved, they were allowed to kind of keep being the bigwigs, you know, and so there's... There's kind of that attitude going on there, too, with the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's like, well, as long as we don't make too much noise, they'll just kind of leave us alone to do our thing. And they kind of seemed okay with that in some ways. In fact, eventually, they really try to use the system to their advantage. That's what, exactly what they do with taking Jesus to Pilate, right? We can't kill him, but you know who can, right? Yeah, use the system, right? Um, but yeah, so Levi, as a tax collector, is in this... this one of the least liked segments of society uh, who John in his preaching earlier in the Gospel of Luke addressed and said, make sure that you're only 
collecting what you're supposed to collect, don't line your own pockets. It's obviously a common practice that they would ask for more than they were required to make themselves wealthy in the process. Um, and it's also interesting to note when you have the full collection of Jesus' 12 uh, apostles, right? It's interesting to note that you have Matthew, who is a tax collector, and in the group you also have a zealot. You have one of the guys who is actually, like, really super opposed to Rome. And it's, it's kind of this interesting picture of how the gospel message, it kind of overcomes some of these things. And so you put two people side by side who couldn't have been more fundamentally opposed had they just met in the street before Jesus, and now they're called to work together as brothers. It's kind of an interesting point. Um, how do you understand uh, Jesus' parable about putting a patch on an old wineskin and new wine in an old wineskin? What is the old versus the new which he's speaking about? And I'll, I'll tell you first off right here that there are a lot of different interpretations of this particular passage, right? There are, uh, I, I have about as many commentaries as you want to pick up, you're likely to find a different take on this particular passage. So I'm curious what you had to say. So. How do you understand this? The way I kind of read it and saw was um, as new creations in Christ, we can't hold on to our old ways. We can't hold on to our sin natures. Okay. Um, and so our sin nature and our old ways would be the old wineskin. Our new life will not fit into that. Okay. It could be the, uh, the old system of the Levitic priesthood uh, and uh, uh, the old prophets and Jesus and now John, John was the last of those right um, because it's connected in some ways to your question about uh, John the Baptist uh, and now Jesus is coming and, and he's a new he, he is the prophet the priest that they all pointed to and so this is this is what it's the new wine is getting the new wine okay any other thoughts? So, this is, just, again, I, I think it's a notoriously difficult passage um, to, to think through. One of the things that, uh, so a lot of times I, I've heard this passage, uh, it, people have said, well, Jesus is talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant, right? Um, or, or like you said, you know, dealing with our old sinful nature and trying to put on the new, you know, and, and so... Um, and those are those are popular, I think, interpretations. But I, I always get confounded by verse 39 in relationship to those, where it says, "He says the old is good," almost like he's saying, like, I mean, so would he be talking about the new covenant? But then, I mean, he could certainly still say the old covenant was good, right? But is he emphasizing that over the new and so it's it's a difficult thing but here's here's at least one take which i have found kind of compelling right so one interpretation one interpretation that seems to fit is that jesus is correcting the pharisees whom have made fasting a weekly practice fasting every monday and thursday as well as various special days in the year according to the old testament law fasting is only prescribed on one day out of the year the day of atonement in light of this, Jesus seems to be suggesting that although fasting is a good spiritual practice to observe when appropriate, it is not commanded to be a regular thing as the Pharisees practice it. Their new traditions are like a new patch on an old wineskin, or like new wine in an old wineskin. Either way, it ruins both. The Pharisees' insistence that their tradition be kept actually hinders people from obeying God at times, and when even their traditions are something basically good, when they force them on the people as though they were God's law, they go bad. Jesus ends by making it clear that the old is better, that is to say, God's law is better than man's traditions. Um, again, I, I'm not saying there's not other takes that you can have on this, but given the immediate discussion of fasting, uh, I think this is a plausible understanding to say that essentially the, the old wineskin is, is the, the old commandments of God, right? Um, but the, the Pharisees and their traditions are like trying to put a new patch on an old wineskin, thereby actually making both bad. 
right? Because uh, the people don't then keep the laws like they're supposed to because they're trying to fulfill the commands of the Pharisees, basically, instead. So I think it's a plausible way to understand this as well. But again, I'm not going not gonna to overcommit on this one because I think it is a challenging passage. So, uh, Any other thoughts or questions on Chapter 5 that you want to discuss before we move on to Chapter 6? Anything that stood out to you that you had a question about or you just say, I really enjoyed this part or I never saw that before? Okay. Well, let's read Chapter 6 together then. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered to the house I'm sorry, entered the house of God and took what and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, he said to him Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets, the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish with others, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. What if you lend, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. 
for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Uh, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own, in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Alright. So what do Jesus' disciples do which caused the Pharisees to accuse them of what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They harvested the ground life. That's right. They plucked a head of grain. How dare they? We'll come back to that in a minute. What does Jesus ask the Pharisees concerning the man with the withered hand? Good. What do, uh, what does Jesus do all night prior to picking the twelve? Always a good idea before a major decision, right? Uh, what does Jesus give to uh, twelve of his disciples? What name does he give? Sorry, to twelve of his disciples. Apostles. Which means anybody? Sent one. Sent one. Good. What does Jesus say to do the one do to the one who takes away your cloak? I swear it's not a trick question. It's just, it's just what's that, right? Okay, give your tunic also. It's pretty personal, right? You think about that, right? So your cloak's your outerwear. Your tunic's a little closer to the vest, right? So. Um, what are we to do prior to taking the speck out of our brother's eye? There it is. I know these are basic, but you got to establish the, the, the basic answers before you start thinking beyond them, right? So, uh, what comes from the abundance of the heart? Yes, our words. And what is a wise person like, according to Jesus? House built on a rock. Yes, building your house on a solid foundation of the rock. Alright, so what is it about the Sabbath which makes the Pharisees quick to get upset about Jesus and his disciples? Consider both the situation where they were walking through the grain field and the healing of the man with the withered hand. So we've got a theme developed here. Why do they get so riled up? What's the deal? Well, you weren't supposed to do any labor on the Sabbath. Okay. They have rest. Right. Right. He's, he's challenging the authority of their specific interpretation okay. out of what it means to not work on the Sabbath. Okay. Which follows on from the patch on the old wineskin. They're trying to improve or enhance what God has given yes. them that is right. Excellent, 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 excellent. 
Um, yeah, and so I, I'm glad you put it just like that because I think this is a good way of connecting this continuing trend, uh, which also reinforces my particular interpretation of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like it. But yeah, uh, that's good. So yeah, so I mean, they're, they're walking through a grain field, grab a head of grain, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, you know, but you kind of rub out the grain, right, and you just kind of chew on it. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of my uh, pastor friends, like I said, this is the equivalent to unwrapping a Snickers bar, <laughs> you know, uh, and yet they're freaking out over it. Um, well, the Sabbath says, you know, the Sabbath command is do no work, you know, and you understand, you say to yourself, how does this work? How is it, you know, I mean, but you understand, right? The Pharisees had, had gotten this down to a, a science of their own, right? So, uh, for instance, say, well, you can't labor on the Sabbath day. Well, that means that you can walk only about two-thirds of a mile on a Sabbath day or you have transgressed this command, right? And they had a whole list of things that you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath day, right? Um, and so you can imagine this is kind of a, this is a slippery slope argument that the Pharisees have going on in their head, I think, right? Like, well... If you can pull the head of grain off, right, you could put it in a basket. And if you put it in a basket and you did it more than once, I mean, that's really just harvesting, right? Like, you're, you, you could just keep going and then you're working, you know? And so it's kind of this unreasonable, like, from this modest action, you have reasoned I'm now harvesting the field on the Sabbath day, which is just kind of ludicrous, but that's essentially what they're, they're saying here, right? Um, and again, on the Sabbath day, right, you have this man in the uh, synagogue with a withered hand. Um, and although I don't think he doesn't say it in, in this passage, you know, but in elsewhere in a similar situation, Jesus will say, you know, if a, if a donkey falls into a well on the Sabbath day, which of you will not go and get it out, right? Um, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? And of course, you know, it's like dead silence, you can imagine, right? You know, asking this question. And of course, he just gets irritated with him and says, all right, you're healed. The guy's hand is fine. Um, but yeah, we're seeing this, this theme develop more in the Gospel of Luke where the, the Pharisees, they're insisting not on following the law of God. They're insisting on following their specific understanding of the law of God. Um, and, and so one way I've heard it that I think is a helpful way to think about it. So imagine that, you know, imagine that like right here is a cliff that you could fall off of. Okay. So if this is where the cliff is, the Pharisees said, let's build a fence right here. And then that way you can't possibly fall off the cliff because we have this nice fence right here. Now, insofar as it goes, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, it's not a bad idea. If you, if you know that you have a sin that you are concerned about transgressing and you want to make sure you don't transgress it, it makes sense to put up some boundaries, and so as far as that goes, that makes sense. I, I mean, I, I think of, you all seen the movie Fireproof? I, I like that movie pretty well. I mean, it's a cheesy Christian movie in some ways, you know, but they all are, right? They're Christian movies. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, the guy is, is struggling with pornography. And so he finally just takes a bat to his computer and throws it away, right? And I like that. I like that scene, you know, because it's just like, yes, take sin that seriously. Like when Jesus says... If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away because it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven that way than to go to hell with your whole body. You know, I mean, people say, well, he's just being, you know, he's just being exaggerative. Well, yes and no, right? I mean, if it were literally the only way to not go to hell, then you should probably pluck your own eye out. But there's probably ways we can avoid sin without going to that extreme. But nonetheless, the, the point is still do these things. Make sure you don't, don't sin, right? Don't fight against it every way you can. So... As far as that goes, Pharisees had a decent idea, right? Here's the problem. So again, cliffs all the way over here. Pharisees' fence is right here. And then you've got somebody standing right here. Sinner! No. Right? That's what they've done. They have said, no, our fence is the line. But no, the reality is the cliff is the line. And, and there might be another believer who stands a little closer to the cliff than you do, but still hasn't fallen off of it, right? And, and it's that, at that point, I mean, you might be able to say, you know, I think it's wise to kind of stand on this side of the fence, you know, because you get kind of close to that, right? But you cannot make your own standard the thing by which people are transgressing the law, 
And that's exactly what the Pharisees have done. They have made their own standards to avoid transgressing the law, and then they've imposed them on the people as if they were the standard itself from God. And so this is the issue that we're seeing with Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees more than not, is they're angry because he disregards their standards and upholds God's. So how might we relate the above? Oh, we already did this. Thank you. Back to the parable of the wineskins, right? It is this, it is this trend, right, that, that, again, they're trying to put their, their new pretty patch that they like, you know, on the old wineskin, right? And so in case we, uh, I don't want to miss the point in case anybody's not familiar with this concept, but you would put new wine into a new wineskin, okay, which is, you know, more or less grape juice when you put it in, okay, and it goes through a fermenting process which causes pressure and expansion in the wineskin. Um, so by the time that it's, you know, it's ready, that, that skin has been stretched out a significant amount. Now, if you were to put new wine into that same old wineskin, that wineskin would not be able to endure that stretching process a second time. It, would, it most likely would burst, right? Um, so that's, that's kind of the picture that Jesus is, is talking about here. Um, and so when you're trying to in, insert something new into something old, and you're trying to uh, reinvigorate, so to speak, the old with our new ways of doing things, you're actually causing problems for both. Both the old wineskin, which is God's commandments, are going to be, uh, be interrupted or broken in some sense, and also your, your new way is going to be exposed as a bad thing as well. So um, why does Jesus use the example of David eating the showbread to respond to the Pharisees? This is 1 Samuel 21 where David does this. Why does he use that example? It wasn't been by the law, but people eat that. Mm -hmm. But they did eat it, and they thought God did not condemn them. Pharisees. Why is the point? Is why? Why is that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, he makes the statement, you know, that the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath, right? This the, God's laws, believe it or not, as much as our culture doesn't want to uh, understand this, sometimes God's laws are for our good and for our flourishing, right? They're made so that we might. Uh, live not only holy, but actually happy and good lives, right? Um, and so, you have these laws put in place for our goods, and specifically the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day command is so that we wouldn't be slaves. I mean, think about it, right? You have, you have coming out of Egypt, uh, I guarantee you they didn't have Saturdays off, right? Uh, slaves don't get days off. Slaves are there to serve their masters. Um, and so, part of the Sabbath day command is obviously set aside time to worship the Lord, but it is also so that we might rest for our own labors, just as God did, right? So that we might have uh, a day where we are not driving ourselves into the ground of work. Uh, and so these, these commandments are for our good. And so there are times where, uh, seemingly, you might have a, a command come in conflict, right, with, with another command of God. Uh, you, you can think of examples like, um, oh, you know, well, thou shalt not bear false witness, and then you have Rahab, right, who's praised for uh, sending them in a different way, you know. Uh, and I don't want to get too far into this discussion, but, but I, I would say that it, it seems like there are times where, where God has commanded this, and God has commanded this, and one has to take precedent over the other. Maybe a better example would be, uh, God tells us in Romans 13 to honor the governing authorities and to, to keep the laws, right? Uh, but then you have uh, the disciples who disregard the governing authorities and continue to preach the gospel, right? Because there is there is a higher priority in that moment. And I think this is another example where Jesus would say, look, yes, there is a priority to rest on the Sabbath, but there's a higher priority to make sure that nobody's hungry. There's a higher priority to make sure that everybody is whole, right? And that is not suffering, um, and so sometimes these things come into conflict, and we want to honor the higher, the higher command in this moment. So I think this is part of his point. How do the Beatitudes and the woes of verses 20 through 26 continue a major theme we have seen in Luke already? Yeah. 
What do you think? How does this continue? He said he was coming to help. Okay. He didn't come to help those that were already righteous, but that those were lowly and poor and sick. So we've seen our Savior born into a poor family, as evidenced by the fact that they give the lesser offering at the temple, right? They're, they're very poor. We see that the shepherds were the first to hear about Jesus uh, is coming to the world, right? We see that uh, Gentiles came to worship him when he was a, a child. We see um, over and over and over again that the neglected of society, the outcast of society, um, the people that are looked down upon are the ones that, that Christ has, that the Lord has been um, revealing himself to and calling to himself. And so here in, the, in the, the Beatitudes and the Woes, we have once again this kind of inversion of what a lot of times people think. Um, so you have those who are weeping now, but they will rejoice later, right? And then on, on its head, right, you have those who are living up life now will not later, right, you know? Um, and again, you, you see, um, you can see where this mindset comes from because obviously uh, the Old Testament scriptures do talk about how God pours out his blessing on the faithful, right? And sometimes that is in financial ways and things like that. But but you also see Job address this notion in the other, on the other side where it says, you know, it's not, it's not that um, God's blessing is necessarily going to be in some sort of um, temporal happiness or wealth or anything like that. And it's also not the case that just because somebody's suffering, like we were talking about with the, the man who was born blind, is necessarily a direct result of their personal sin. Uh, but Jesus is, is inverting the, the ideas that a lot of people have, the Pharisees may have, about, well, if you are poor and if you are uh, hungry and if you are unhappy, you deserve to be that way. That's, you're that way for a reason. God is probably punishing you for your wickedness. And we Pharisees who have plenty to eat and are dressed nice and are pretty happy with our situation in life just because God loves us more. Right? And so Jesus is turning this on its head once again. says, you better be careful if that's the way you think. Because it's not necessarily the reality. How does Jesus' instruction in verses, uh, verses 27 through 36 echo John the Baptist's teaching in Luke 3, 10 through 14? How does his instructions in verses 27 through 26 echo John the Baptist's teaching in Luke 3, 10 through 14? There's a sense of, of uh, showing kindness to those who persecuted, you know, that actions to the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, even to those that have been unkind, you know, the giving of the cloak and the tunic, the yeah. turning the cheeks. Uh, okay. And with that, too, speculating here, I mean, the tax collectors were looked down on by the Jews. So they had no reason to stop doing what they were doing to a certain extent. Everyone hated them, so why not take a little extra from them? But it's, um, so in some ways, they could be considered their enemies in that sense. But, God, but Jesus says, love your enemies. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that you see John, he addresses these specific groups. He addresses uh, tax collectors and soldiers and their, and how they should behave and how they should not extort people and not, uh, you know, not take more than they're supposed to collect. And, um, and this, where, where Jesus is now speaking to the crowds, is the other half, kind of, of that message. Which is to say, okay, so, you know, John addressed soldiers and the tax collectors and how they ought to behave and, and live a penitent lifestyle and, and behave themselves, right? But suppose they don't, as many of them won't, right? This is how you respond. They want your, your cloak? Fine, give me your tunic also, right? They want you to carry all their junk for a mile? Offer to do two, right? So he, he, he's, in other words, he's not, um, he's not creating victims, I guess you might say, right? He's saying, look, 
they're they're being addressed in their own way. God is going to deal with them. He has told them how they ought to live their lives, right? But the reality is, is you still have to live your life the way God wants you to, even if other people are going to mistreat and abuse you. Um, and, and so I, I think that as Christians, sometimes we can get into this mode where we will say, well, if they would just behave the way they're supposed to, like God tells them to behave, right, then we wouldn't have a problem here, right? And yet we have to ask, stop and say, but how does God want me to behave regardless of how they behave? Regardless of, I mean, if, if I'm going to be cheated, they shouldn't cheat. God says not to cheat people, right? But if you're going to be cheated, how do you handle it? What do you do? What's your responsibility? Is it to react in anger? Or is it to react in a way that honors the kingdom of God, right? That points out uh, what God has done in your life. Um, and verse 31, of course, is sometimes called the golden rule. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Um, and this is, that, this is that guiding principle, right? It doesn't matter how somebody is acting towards you. What matters is how would you want them to behave towards you and make sure you're doing that to them. Um, one thing, I, I, I was listening to a debate recently uh, between William Lane Craig and Christopher Hitchens. William Lane Craig is a Christian apologist. Uh, he's an Arminian, but he's pretty good on other things. And then we have uh, Christopher Hitchens, the atheist. But you know, Christopher Hitchens, instead of that debate, he's like saying, well, you know, almost all religions have the golden rule, of, you know, don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. Um, and he says this isn't actually original to Jesus. He quotes, I can't remember who it was from you know, earlier on in, in history who said this first. You know? And, and um, it struck me that, uh, one, in, in some way I think he's kind of right, and two, I think he's also very wrong. One is that I do think that you will see this statement, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, earlier than the Christian tradition. But notice, that's actually not what Jesus says. Right? He doesn't say refrain from harming people because you don't want them to harm you. He says, think about how you want people to treat you. And then make sure you're treating them that way. Right? He, he, he puts it in a positive light. So for all I know, it's possible that Jesus was well aware of this other statement, this other phrase, this other saying. Right? And again, like he does, inverts it and puts it on its head. It's not about trying to avoid suffering or avoid getting other people mad at you. It's about loving other people the way that you want them to love you, even if they refuse to, even if they never do. Uh, and that's, that's essentially what God models for us throughout all of Scripture and in our daily lives is his constant faithfulness and love towards us, even though we numbskulls very often don't love him like we're supposed to, right? And don't act towards him like we're supposed to. Um, so, let's see here. How does Jesus' teaching in the same passage actually go well beyond what John taught? We kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, yeah, let's just go to the next one. <laughs> what does Jesus actually teach in the sermon about judging others? Consider Matthew 18, 15, and 20, and 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, I joke sometimes that John 3.16 used to be the most known Bible verse, right? I think Matthew 7.1 is now the most known Bible verse. Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Which, of course, this is the parallel here in Luke, right? So um, how, how do we understand what he's trying to say here? Should I refrain from all judgment? No? Okay. Well, but judging's mean. So, um, what, what, what kind of judgments are appropriate? What kind of judgments are not appropriate? According to Jesus' teaching and these other scriptures that we've given you to think about. Well, it tells you not to throw your pearls before swine, so there's a sense of discernment or judging okay. what's appropriate in those things. So he's not saying don't make any kind of judgments or discernments whatsoever yes. in the situation. Yeah, so yeah, 
understood in a certain way, right? We make judgments all the time. I judged to have a certain kind of cereal this morning instead of the other kind of cereal, right? You know, I made a judgment call, right? So yeah, we make judgments of that sort of time. We make determinations on what we want to do that day or, you know, all kinds of things. So that's that's probably not on the table of this just kind of generalized judgments. So what, what other kind of judgments are there that Jesus might either condemn or approve of? I think it's hypocritical judgments. Talk about the speck and the law. There's okay. A serial killer hitting on someone for jaywalking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're a mass murderer, but you're mad at the guy for jaywalking. Yeah. Yeah, technically you're both wrong, but you're not the guy who should be getting all up in arms about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm choosing extremes to make a point. Right. But, you know, that's. So it's hypocritical judgment. It's like you're doing far worse, but you're enraged over this person who's yes. doing Is it also a sense, too, of, of what we've been talking about with the Pharisees and the sense that they're adding to the law and then judging people according to what they've added to it? Sure. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, on what you were saying, it makes me think so. I teach logic, and uh, one of the fallacies in logic is the tu quoque fallacy. It's Latin for you also, right? Uh, which, which means that, you know, somebody say, you'll be the mass murderer for now, okay? You're the mass murderer, and uh, I jaywalked, right? And you're saying, hey, you shouldn't jaywalk. That's dangerous, right? Or it's illegal or whatever, right? And I say, hey, you're a mass murderer. I don't have to listen to you, right? That's the two quote quote fallacy. Because here's the thing, right? He's still right, didn't he? Right? Like he's still right, even though he's a mass murderer. He wasn't wrong about what he just said. So that and that's why it's a logical fallacy. Because sometimes people get in these arguments and they'll just say, "Well, you also do bad things, or you also are wrong about something." But that doesn't actually address the argument, right? Um, but yes, right. So, but nonetheless, hypocritical judgment is a bad thing, right? So I should. I should be introspective, I should be aware of my own sin, my own shortcomings, and it should be ever before my eyes before I go about trying to correct other people. That being said, what does Jesus actually say to do here? What is, what is his instructions to the person with the log in their eye? Take it out. What are you saying? You don't know? So, <laughs> Take it out so that you may see more clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, so here's the thing, the subtlety that people just seem to miss all the time on, on this passage and it's parallel in Matthew, right? Jesus doesn't say not to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says to take the log out of your own eye first so you may see clearly to do it for your brother, right? Jesus is not saying do not make judgments amongst brethren. He's saying, do it rightly. He's saying, deal with your own sin first and foremost, and then seek to aid and help your brother. And note that you know, the idea of taking a speck out of your, your brother's eye is it is it a ginger kind of helpful thing? You know, let me can I just can I just get that for you? You know what I mean? It's it's not this aggressive act. It can be a very helpful thing, right? Oh, yeah, thank you, that's killing me, you know? I mean, like, that could be a really good thing. But it needs to be done by the person with the right heart, with the right attitude, who's very serious about dealing with their own sin. I mean, how, how much easier is it to accept, hey, you really shouldn't jaywalk, from the guy who really seeks to just be a very serious law-abiding citizen, um, and, but is also very kind, you know, says, hey, you know, there's danger, there's a reason that law is in place, you know, and you should just think about it, right? It, it causes traffic problems, you can get hit, I don't want anything bad to happen to you, you know what I mean? It's a whole different deal than, than the mass murderer telling me that I shouldn't jaywalk, you know, it's just a different tone. Um, and, and again, you know, in Matthew 18, this is the famous passage for how do we deal with sin in our, with amongst our brothers, you know, we, we go to them personally, they won't hear. We take a brother or sister in Christ with us. If they won't hear. We take it to the church, you know. And, and obviously, if, if there's no repentance, it's it's excommunication, right? Um, and in First Corinthians five, you have a real heinous situation where a man is is uh, sleeping with his stepmother. That's the most generous interpretation of that passage. I hope that's correct, but it's still awful. Um, either way, right? Paul says he's done this sin publicly. 
uh, as if though I were in your midst, you know, you put him out of fellowship basically until he's ready to let go of that sin. So the Bible's not at all saying we don't make judgments. We have to make judgments. Uh, judgment needs to happen. But we got to do it rightly. And I want to note also in 1 Corinthians 5 that it says that uh, it is those inside the church whom we are to judge. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? So notice the difference in attitude also between how we deal with fellow believers in sin versus unbelievers in sin. That's Our, our domain with unbelievers is to preach the gospel. It's to point them towards Jesus and the good news. God will decide what to do with them in the long run. But those of us who have already committed to Christ, we need to hold each other accountable and be vocal about it. All right, so we're, we're running out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and draw to a close. I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of those other questions if you want to some time. But let me go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for uh, your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to make judgments. Help us to make righteous judgments, judgments about how to live each day, how to obey your laws and commandments, uh, how to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, how to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, God, help us to be quick, not to look to our own interests, but the interest of others. Help us to uh, bless those who persecute us, to pray for those who hate us, Lord. Um, let us be more concerned with people seeing Christ and hearing the gospel than us getting our rights. We thank you, God, that you look out for the little guy, um, Lord, that you are looking out for our interests, so we don't have to look out for our own interests because you're doing that on our behalf. So help us, Lord, to look to the good of others, to hear your word and obey, and to glorify you in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.